Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. If you're new with us, I'll tell you where we are. We've been uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's a long book, and we've been in it for a while. And we've been in chapter 15. 15's a long chapter, and we've been in it for a while. And uh, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is an argument about the resurrection of the dead. So you, you have the truth. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was raised up according to the scriptures. He's been raised from the dead. He's seated at God's right hand. And the consequence of that truth is that we also will be raised from the dead. All those who hope in Christ will be raised from the dead. But there are people in the church in Corinth because of their philosophy, because of their enlightenment, because of their sophistication, whatever, who deny the resurrection of the dead. They believe, yeah, Jesus raised from the dead. He's a special case. We won't be raised from the dead. And so the Apostle Paul argues with them. He argues and he argues and he fights and he fights and he reasons and he argues. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is. It's just a big, long argument. And as a matter of fact, that's what the New Testament is. It's an argument. All the epistles, all the letters that the apostles write, whether it's Paul or Peter or John or Jude, they are arguing with, with opponents that are wrong. And so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they pick up their pen and they start writing. And they're not just writing nice little love notes and little encouragements and little... Uh, tidbits of happy thoughts. They're arguing. That's what the New Testament is. And so don't get it in your mind, which is a common thing flying around today, that to argue is not Christian. To argue is one of the most Christian things you can do because it, it, it assumes there is truth. There is right and wrong. There is light and dark. There's true and there's false. And words God has given us words that are eternally true and so we can argue. Someone's right and someone's wrong. And that's what he's doing in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's arguing. And so we're gonna pick up and finish the chapter starting in verse 35. So follow along as I read. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. 
it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, but flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So in verse 35, the Apostle Paul starts with some questions. But some will say, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Now, think about this. What kind of questions are these? Yeah, who's asking them, right? What kind of questions and who's asking them? Paul, Paul actually does this kind of thing all the time. He makes an argument. Again, he's arguing, he's reasoning. And in the middle of an argument, he'll stop and he'll anticipate a question. He'll say, now, right here, someone should be asking this. And I know some of you are asking this. And so he anticipates the questions his readers will have. He says this, but someone will say, right? What kind of questions are these, though? Are they honest questions? Are these innocent questions? Look at how he answers them. Verse 36, you fool, you fool. Now what kind of answer is that, <laughs> right? That's not very nice. Doesn't Jesus say we're not supposed to call people fools? Well, the Bible calls people fools all the time, all right? So whatever Jesus says means when he says, don't call your neighbor fool, he doesn't mean that there isn't a time to call someone a fool. If he's a fool, then he's a fool. Whoever's asking these questions is a fool. And the only right response to this is, you fool. But I'm just asking innocent questions, Paul. Why are you being so nasty? That hurts my feelings. No, 
He's a fool. Remember, he is dealing with people who say there is no resurrection of the dead. Yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, but we're sophisticated. We are enlightened. We know that your body is just a, a shell. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a cage. It's just a prison. It's just going to rot away. We know that the, your, your body is actually evil. It's not going to raise from the dead. We're more enlightened than that. You fool. It's at the very heart of our hope as Christians that this body will be raised from the dead. And you start messing with that and undermining that and, and questioning it, you are a fool. And mocking. These aren't honest questions. These are loaded questions. These are mocking questions. And mocking questions deserve this kind of answer, you fool. Now, as I said, the Apostle Paul does this all, all over the place. He, he's always doing this because he's always, he always has an opponent, uh, someone he's arguing against. And so he does the same kind of thing in Romans 9. In Romans 9, where he's teaching us about God's absolute control over who is saved and who isn't. And we hate what he says here. All of us hate this by, by nature. He says in Romans 9, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And we hear that and we say, that's not fair. That can't be right. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He anticipates this question that the mocker will have. This is in Romans 9, 19 and 20. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Right, how can, I, how can God hold me accountable for anything I do if he's in control of, of everything, right? This is, the, this is the question of a mocker. And here's Paul's answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who do you think you are? Asking a question like that. That's, who are you to answer back to God? You fool. You see? Who are you to tell God what is fair and just? Who are you to question the justice of God? Sit down and shut your mouth. You mocker. And that's what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians 15, 36. You fool. You fool. You are not an honest truth seeker. You are a fool. You are a mocker. Now look at these questions. How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Now you can imagine someone, you can imagine these questions being asked by an honest, truth-seeking, humble man who simply wants to know. He wants to learn about the resurrection and what it's gonna be like. So you can, you can read this as an honest question by an honest, humble man who wants to know. Or you can imagine these questions being asked by a fool, right? Hey, hey, Paul. Hey, guys, watch this. Hey, Paul. You believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? Watch this, guys. So tell us just exactly how are the dead raised? I mean, with what kind of body do they come, huh? 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 This is a mocker. This is a fool. There's a way to ask questions that is honest, that seeks the, the truth in order to know it, 
learn it, and submit to it. And there's a way to ask questions that is a mockery, that is proud, that does not want an answer. And we see this all the time today. This is nothing new. Especially when we're, we're talking to unbelieving mockers who hate God's law. You're talking to unbelieving mockers who hate God's law, especially today, God's law regarding sexuality. Surely you've seen this, right? You're talking with someone about homosexuality and how God's law condemns it as an abomination. And what does the unbelieving mocker ask? What does he ask? Oh, so do you also condemn eating shellfish? Do you, do you, is your shirt made of polyester and cotton? Huh, huh? Now, do you understand what they're trying to do? They're trying to undermine one part of God's law by pitting it against another, and they're ignorant, and they're fools, and they're mockers. And you could give them an answer to that question, right? You can give them an answer to that, but they're not looking for an answer to that. They're looking for, I gotcha. All of God's law is foolish. That's what they're trying to say. They have no idea what they're talking about. So they're mockers, they're, they're ignorant, they don't want to learn, they don't want to understand. It's not an honest question. He's not looking for an, a real answer because he wants to understand God's law and how to obey and apply it today. No, he's just a fool. Now, does that mean that we should never ask questions? Of course not. Of course we should ask questions. But when we ask questions of God and his word, we must ask them with humility. I don't understand this. This is hard for me to, there's something I'm missing here, but I want to understand, and I know that there's an answer, and I know, God, that you know the answer, and whatever you say, I will believe you, and I will obey you, and I I will submit to you, but help me, I, I don't understand. Now, that's a totally different way of asking the question. That's the right way to ask the question. And so there are answers to these kinds of questions. The answer for the mocker is, you fool. But there are answers for those who really want to know. And so the Apostle Paul gives answers. So look again at verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. Okay, that's the answer the fool gets. (laughs) You fool. But then there are answers, and here they are. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, look, this is, there's nothing strange or bizarre here when we start thinking about God raising bodies from the dead or God changing bodies from one thing to something else. God does this kind of thing all the time. We see this all the time. Every time you take a little seed, 
and you put it in the ground. I plant tomato seeds this year. I started them from, from, uh, from seed, and I, I planted them in my little pot, and it's this tiny little weird-looking dead thing, and you put it in the ground, and, it, and then what happens? Glory comes out of there, right? Something else comes out of there. Something that didn't look anything like that came out of, comes out of there. Something that bears fruit. And you see this every time you go to the restaurant, for crying out loud. What do you order? What makes you decide to order steak instead of fish? <laughs> They're different, right? They're different. There's one kind of meat that a cow has. There's one kind of meat that a fish has. There's one kind of body that a pig has. This is nothing, this is not bizarre. This is not strange. This is just the way God made the world. There's a difference between bodies. Why would it somehow be difficult or impossible for God to make your body different when he raises it from the dead? He does this kind of thing all the time. And so seeds fall into the ground and die, but then spring out of the ground as something glorious and different, and there's all, God has designed different kinds of bodies. So what's the point? Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's exactly what the resurrection of the dead is like. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body, he says. And then he goes back to the relationship between Adam and Jesus Christ. It's gone all through this chapter and he comes back to it again. Adam, remember, was the first man He was the head of his people by Adam because of Adam's sin came death. In Adam all die. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the second man, the last Adam. He is the head of his people. By him came the resurrection of the dead. All who are in Christ will be made alive. So verse 45. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. He goes on in verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. In other words, Adam first, then Christ. The natural first, then the spiritual. In order to have a new body, you have to have an old body. In order to have a spiritual body, you have to have had a natural body first. First Adam, then Christ. Verse 47, the first man, Adam, is from the earth, earthy. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so in other words, as is Adam, Adam is under the sentence of death because of sin, so also are those who are earthy, us. All of us are under the sentence of death because of Adam's sin. So whatever Adam is like is what we're like. And as is the heavenly, Jesus Christ, so also are those who are heavenly. All those who belong to Jesus Christ, as he is, so we will be. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, Jesus. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Think about this. Since our first father fell, since Adam rebelled against God and cast all of his descendants into sin and death, 
we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our bodies aren't fit for it anymore because of the corruption that came upon us because of God's curse on Adam's sin. Why do we get sick? How long do we live? Why are we weak? It's because of Adam and his sin, his, God's curse against us. That kind of body, the kind of body you and I have, isn't fit for the kingdom of God. It's not fit for it. It won't work. Why? We are perishable. Adam sinned, and so we are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. Our bodies are merely flesh and blood. We are weak, we are feeble, we are sick. We will die and fall into the ground and rot. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless our bodies are changed. Why is that? Why do our bodies need to be changed in order to inherit the kingdom of God? Isn't the kingdom of God just a spiritual existence in the heavens, floating, floating in the sky, free from the chains of these bodies. Isn't that what we all hope for? Isn't that what we're all supposed to hope for? Being free from these bodies? Isn't the ultimate joy of salvation to be free from these bodies, these prison houses of our souls? Aren't our bodies just a cage? Someday, someday, glorious day, I'll, I'll fly away. Oh, glory. No, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The pinnacle of God's salvation is not to be free from your body. The pinnacle of God's salvation is to get your body back the way it's supposed to be. The Bible never teaches that our bodies are in themselves evil. The Bible never teaches that the ultimate goal of our redemption is to be finally free from flesh. When God made your flesh in the first place, he said, this is very good. This is good. It was corrupted because of sin. This idea that the ultimate goal of our redemption is to be finally free from flesh is not a Christian idea. This is a pagan idea. It's the idea that Paul is fighting against in 1 Corinthians. They're, they're, they have these holdovers from their Greek paganism. What pagans say is the body is bad. The body is bad. A bad God took stuff and made bodies out of it and took souls and imprisoned those souls, those good souls and bad bodies. And that's the problem. And the ultimate salvation is when we get out of this body and get to be free from this terrible burden of the flesh. That's what pagans say. It's not what God says. But let me tell you, this is all through our thinking, right? This is all through our thinking. In the world and in the church. So let me tell you how it is in the church, right? How many, how many of you have taken your children to a funeral? Yes, right? And you take your, and if it's a loved one, especially, here's what you're gonna say. 
here's what you're going to be tempted to say. I've said it. You, you, you come up to the casket, if it's an open casket, and you say, now, now remember, kids, that's not really Grandpa. Grandpa's gone, and that's not really Grandpa. Right? You've all said this. I've said this. It's wrong. Now, there's a sense in which it's true. His soul is gone, and what we are is bodies inhabited by souls. So in one sense, you could say, yeah, okay, that's not, grandpa's gone. But no, in another sense, that's absolutely grandpa. That's grandpa's body. God gave us a body and a soul. The real grandpa is not just the soul. It's the soul and the body together. All right? Now, let me explain further. What does that look like in the culture? Well, think about transgenderism. Transgenderism. What is that? I am a woman. What? Trapped in a man's body. So there's a disconnect. My body isn't me. My body has nothing to do with me. The real me is the, is the person inside. You understand? It's exactly the same reasoning. That's not grandpa. Grandpa, okay, I'm... I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. My body and my soul are not connected. There's no, the real me is not my body. The real me has nothing to do with my body. The real me is just the spirit inside of me. You understand? That, that's where you get transgenderism. It's also where you get cremation. You understand? It's also where you get cremation. Now, Tim has talked about cremation on and off through Romans, or uh, what is this, 1 Corinthians 15, and, but here's a good chance to talk about it again. What does cremation say? What is the, what is the, the underlying assumption behind cremation? That's not grandpa. No, grandpa. Grand, the real grandpa's gone, and that, that thing there that thing there has nothing to do with grandpa. Baloney, it doesn't have anything. It is grandpa. Of course it is. You understand? It is grandpa. Now his soul is gone. But that body is grandpa. And so we don't burn it. We plant it. I don't care about the cost. Do you understand? We'll take up a collection, but don't burn yourself. We're not gonna do it. There are people who I love sitting here who want us to burn their bodies when they die, and I keep telling them, ain't gonna do it. If I wouldn't do that to you when you're alive, why would he do it to, to you when you're dead? All right, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the ultimate goal of our salvation is to have our flesh changed, to have the perishable become imperishable from earthly to heavenly. 
And the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 8.23 that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is what we look forward to. This is what we, we, we hope in. The redemption of our body. Even those who are in heaven right now, they're enjoying the presence of God, absolutely. They're with Christ. They're, they're enjoying that. It's better than being here in one sense. But even they are waiting eagerly to get their bodies back. It's not done yet. It's not done yet until they get their bodies back. They are groaning, waiting for the redemption of their body. But not their old bodies, not the body of death, but the body of life, the body that's like the body that Jesus has. That is the ultimate consummation of our salvation. It's not done yet until that happens. To live, to breathe, and work to relate to one another, to rejoice together in a new body, on a new earth, without sin, without pain, without tears, without death. That's the point. Making it back the way it was before Adam fell, but even better, even better. Don't let your thinking be poisoned with this nonsense. Now, in order to enjoy that ultimate salvation, you have to be changed. You, your body has to be changed. And so, You know, before I go on to that, whatever is broken by the fall, Jesus fixes. Okay? Your body is broken by the fall. Jesus fixes it. So if you're going to ignore the body, that's going to ignore a huge part of what Jesus came to fix. So don't do that. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, of course, um, where does this verse belong? In the nursery. Yeah. I really hope someone who can do this well will paint this up on a little plaque and put it in, is this what every, it should hang in every nursery. All right. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What does he mean? We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for this trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So not all will die. All who are alive when Christ returns will not go through the process of death, but even they will have to be changed. Their body will still need to be changed. Not raised from the dead, because they didn't die, but changed. We will all be changed. All of us who are in Christ, all who believe him and trust him alone, 
for forgiveness of sins, we will all be changed. And he's, again, this is like, what kind of work will that be for God? What does it say? Just like this, right? You see my eye blink? In a, in a, in a flitter of the eye is what that word means. Just like that. This is nothing for God. We will all be changed. Why? Verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. How ironic is that, right? Death swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Make no mistake, death is not a friend. Death is not a friend. It's not a natural part of life, right? This is what we hear all the time as well even by Christians. No, 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 no. Death is not a na- absolutely not a natural part of life. Death is a result of the curse, and the curse is a result of rebellion against God, and that's not natural, right? Death is not a natural part of life. No. Death is an enemy. But it's an enemy that's doomed to defeat. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He sits at God's right hand and he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Not the last friend, the last enemy. It will be abolished. It's as good as dead, but not quite yet, but it will be. It is doomed. Death is an enemy, it's the fruit of sin, but it's a doomed enemy. Jesus Christ is the death of death. The sting of death, he says, the sting of death is sin. What does that mean? Death is like a scorpion with a sting, right? A little stinger. And that sting is is sin. But, but our Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sins. Listen to what uh, John Calvin says. He says, death has no dart, no sting, with which to wound us except sin, since death proceeds from the anger of God. Now it is only with our sins that God is angry. Take away sin, therefore, and death will no more be able to harm us. You see, why is death a threat? Because it represents and is the judgment of God against our sins. But Jesus has died for our sins. And so death, where is your sting? 
If you are in Christ, death cannot harm you. If your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are free from the power of death. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But Jesus has removed the curse of God's law by becoming a curse for us. He has taken on himself all the judgment of God's law for everyone who will trust him. And so what is death? The thing that used to be the most awful weight, the most awful fear, what is it now? The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1 when he was contemplating his own death, here's what he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, he had the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. God takes this, this awful curse and he turns it into what? By taking its sting away, he turns it into our entrance into glory. Death is now just our entrance into glory. And so verse 57, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Jesus came to free you from death. He actually came not only to free you from death, but to free you from the fear of death. Hebrews 2.15 says that Jesus came to free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The whole world apart from Jesus lives under the slavery that comes from the fear of death. That's what he says. Jesus came to free us. Free us from that. To take away the sting. To take away the judgment. Take away the fear. Do not be a slave to the fear of death. Jesus came to save you from death. He came to save you from your sins. Jesus says, remember in the Gospels, he says, not even a hair of your head will perish. Now what does that mean? Because we buried my dad, you know, six months ago. So how can it be that not a hair hair of our head will perish? Well, that's just temporary. Right? You get your body back. Not even, it's so, it's so temporary that Jesus can say, not even a hair of your head will perish. Don't be a slave to the fear of death. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there's the doctrine of the resurrection. Okay, there it is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And because he was raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead also. And if you start thinking, no, 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 our bodies won't be raised, they're just dust and dirt and grind them up and burn them and forget about that. Then, we're, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead either and we're all dead in our sins 
That's the argument of Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15. All right, and there he's made it and he's done. But is he done? No, he's not done yet. The Apostle Paul is never done teaching doctrine until he applies it. And the application is verse 58. Um, Matthew Henry says, now we get to verse 58, and verse 58 is where he improves the doctrine, right? He improves it. He takes it and he uses it for good. And so here it is. So here this improvement application of the doctrine of the resurrection, your resurrection from the dead. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's the point. That's the point. So think about this. What happens if you reject the truth of the resurrection of the dead? What happens if you reject this truth of the resurrection of the dead? Where does that get you? Well, you get meaninglessness. You get meaninglessness. What is the point? If everything that happens in this life just dies and rots and it's gone, what's the point? You get vanity. You know what vanity means? Vanity means nothing, means empty, it means nothing. What is the point? If all you are is uh, a bag of stardust, as they say these days, isn't that a wonderful way to think about yourself? Well, that's all, it's all you are. It is literally all you are if the Bible is not true. Young people, you're getting ready to go, you're in high school, you're getting ready to go to college. This is what they will teach you, that you are nothing but a bag of stardust. Because you didn't, there is no God. You live in an unpurposed, ungoverned accident. And so all you are is a bag of stardust, and that bag of stardust is going to leak or break or shrivel up or something, and then it's gone, then you're gone. And so that's why you should pursue excellence. Right? That makes perfect sense. No. If there is no resurrection, if there's no God, if there's no hope, if there's no kingdom of God, if, there's, if this isn't going somewhere, governed by God, what is the use? Eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow you die. You get nihilism. Life is pointless, life is meaningless. All we are is a successful virus clinging to a speck of mud suspended in endless nothing. That's a quote from a nihilist. Nihilism says nothing, nil, nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing means anything. And so here we are, a, a successful virus clinging to a speck of mud suspended in endless nothing. So pursue excellence or something. No, you end up with nothing. 
nothing you do matters, nothing you do lasts. But no, no. We believe the truth of the resurrection of the dead. And so we have hope. It spurs us on to steadfast, immovable hope. And that hope spurs us on to what? What does verse 58 say? What does our hope spur us on to? What is it? Work, labor, toil. Why work, labor, and toil if it's all just gonna go poof and be gone, right? But it's not all just gonna go poof and be gone. (laughs) The resurrection of the dead. The work that you do now carries on. The body that you do it in carries on. He's not just gonna cause all of this to cease to exist and then start over again. He's gonna take this and cause it to die and be raised up in glory, including your work that's done for him. Be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding, not just pittering along, but abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So because you will be raised from the dead, your, your life means something. Your work and toil are not in vain. So mothers, mothers, Be steadfast, right? Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your toil is not in vain. Fathers, be steadfast, be immovable. Your toil is not in vain. Teachers, builders, Deacons, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Keep doing it. The hope is not here, it's there. The motivation is not here, it's down there. It's out there, but it's certain. You who pray, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You elders, you pastors, all of you, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't get lazy, don't get tired, don't get cynical, don't give up on it. Don't be hopeless. Abound in the work of the Lord. How, how do I do that? Knowing that your toil is not in vain. Why is my toil not in vain? Because of the resurrection of the dead. Isn't that great? We have work to do. 
Let's do it. Let's not give up. Let's pray.